it's finding a balance between confidence and humility, right? You need supreme confidence in, in your idea and your unique ability to make this idea a reality, whether it's a product, a service, whatever. At the same time, you need humility to know not only what you don't know, right? Like I knew I'm not good at marketing and sales. Mm -hmm. I, I need to also recognize there's other stuff I don't even know I don't know. And having the humility to bring that on, but balancing when I bring in third parties to give advice, balancing that with confidence that, but I have this great idea and I'm moving it forward. And so I think there's that inherent tension between confidence and humility, but striking that balance seems really important to being able to move things forward and keeping it in the direction that you envisioned. everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, material entrepreneur that's grown several startups into seven and eight-figure businesses, as well as the founder and CEO of Miller IP Law, where we focus on helping startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. If you ever need help with yours, just go to strategymeeting.com and grab some time with us to chat. Now, today we have another great guest on the podcast, Bryn Wilson. And to give you a quick introduction to, to Bryn, um, and I always want to say Brienne. So just as a caveat, if I ever say Brienne, I don't know why my mind always watches the production name that way, but my apologies in the front end. But uh, Bryn uh, was an unlikely um, entrepreneur, went to college and uh, was, uh, or was going to law school, went to, uh, went, into Michigan, or went to Michigan and got an English degree and English or French degree in undergraduate and then went to NYU for law school. Um, then worked for an attorney for a bit, worked as uh, an employment law, doing some, some counseling and litigation, and then decided to um, take some time off, spend the, with the family, uh, with a stay-at-home stay mother for, uh, for nine years. So that's great. And that's what my wife does. So I definitely think that's awesome. And then uh, went back to the law firm for a period of time. And then more recently with the law firm also wanted to, or gotten, or gave notice to the law firm so that uh, she could focus on doing a startup and, uh, and endeavors that, and that she'll dive into a bit more on that end. So um, with that much as an introduction, and hopefully I don't call you Brianne too much, um, but uh, or welcome to the podcast. Thanks. And thanks so much for having me. I respond, I get all sorts of variations on my name and I respond to just about any of them. So Totally so works. It's one where it's like it's it's one where I if I think about it I know, but it's just like if I don't if it's just you know natural how I do it. Some reason my mind always connects Brianne with the when I see the name. So I always just want to apologize in the in the in the front end so I don't uh, slaughter anybody's name. But definitely, so I gave a uh, quick introduction to your journey, kind of a you know a high level overview. But maybe just take us back a bit in time to kind of going to college, going to undergraduate and getting your majors and then going to law school and kind of how your journey started there. Sure. Um, so I grew up in rural Michigan and I always, you know, from a young age, apparently I was opinionated and argumentative. And so I was always going to go to law school. Uh, so I went to Michigan, had like four fabulous years, go blue. Uh, I would say it was kind of the quintessential college experience. It was just, you know, terrific all around. And again, I was pretty focused on law school. So took sort of a traditional pre-law approach and did English and French, um, not a super useful language, but a pretty one. And uh, then I did apply directly after law, undergrad to go to law school. And I was fortunate to get into a lot of great schools, but I was dating a guy at the time, now my husband, who was already living and working in New York. And so I went to NYU, which was uh, a, a great place to go to law school. I think being in the city was a lot of fun. I mean, I got to 
hear two Supreme Court justices like 10 feet away in these small, you know, seminar type settings. So it was a really great three years. And I was really on a traditional, I'm a pretty, you know, traditional corporate kind of path, right? I, after your second year, you work intern at a firm and I did that and I was set to go there uh, upon graduation. And then my husband got transferred uh, to the Southeast. And so we moved to Raleigh, North Carolina, which we loved. Um, and I joined it from there and doing employment litigation and some general litigation. Then we started having children and I went back to cut down to part-time. He was traveling a lot. And then when we had our third child, it just felt like a something had to give. And so I, pretty unlikely what I would have thought for my life, I kind of took time off. I always say like I stopped working, but I really just stopped getting a paycheck, right? I was just home <laughs> slaving away. Oh, I for definitely a agree. My wife would as well. I think that a lot of time or almost every time I've thought always that that is more work because you don't have, you can't come home from the office. You're not taking a break. You don't get a breather and it's 24 uh, seven. So I, yeah. I definitely resonate with that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I thought that'd be like a two year stint. I uh, ended up being a nine year stint, um, which kind of still surprises me, but you know, time flies when you're having fun or, or, or not so much. Uh, during that time, I did write a book and self-publish it more for kind of fun than, than anything. And then, Maybe it, it a hint to an entrepreneurial bent in me. Uh, my husband and I started uh, acquiring some residential rental properties and it, our kind of our one little niche we did, we find single family homes and convert them into duplexes, which helped dramatically with the ROI, but generally like a still pretty corporate path. And then it was like, kids got older. Oh, I did the obligatory stint as like the PTO president, but then it felt like, all right, time to kind of do something with my law degree because I do love practicing law it's not uh, like you know as you know it's not the movies it's <laughs> it's research and writing and digging into regs and but I enjoy all that stuff so I went back to a firm um, a great firm employment happy to be there uh, now, there's one question kind of on that so because I mean first and I get you know hey there's somebody you know want to take care of the kids want to be with them want to help them or help them grow up and, and make sure that you have a parent there taking off that time in nine years is, you know, a great time and I'm sure it's enjoyable and also a ton of work. Um, you know, as you know, my, my assumption is, but tell me definitely if I'm wrong, you know, as kids are growing up, getting back to the school, you have, you know, they're otherwise occupied through the day and you decide to, you know, do go back and do a, an attorney. How was it to, um, you know, get back into the practice, whether it's fun or is what you remembered is when you previously practiced, was it a bit of, you know, after taking the the time off or at least you're not practicing law for that period of time was it a kind of a snark jolt or kind of had that go for you um it was it, it was i it was more like riding a bike than i thought it came back a lot uh, more quickly and i did i mean caveat i did go back on a part-time basis because the, the big firm the hour requirements are still difficult with uh the demands of family um but it, it's been great. And it's one of those, again, like the, like you said, I'm an unlikely entrepreneur. You know, it was more likely I would stay in this kind of corporate path. And yet I now find myself here on this podcast and, and leaving the legal professional, at least for the time being. So, and you did that. And I think that's, there's probably some truth to that. You know, if you practiced a while, if you, you did a good job, if you were a good attorney, then there's, you know, things come back and it takes you a little bit to come back, back up to speed. Now, you know, so as you're, you're, doing a law firm thing again, or at least doing that part-time and, you know, and balancing that with continuing to raise kids and with the family and whatnot, and you're doing all of that. Now, how did, you know, the business you're at now, which you can give maybe just a brief explanation, but 
you know, how did that come about? Were you looking, you wanted to do a startup, you were excited about it, you're looking for an opportunity. Was it more just, hey, I have a great idea that was a happenstance and too good to pass up or kind of, how did you come up with the idea and kind of what prompted you to, to make that uh, transition? So I had been looking for the products that I am now making for literally about 10 years, kind of since I got to the stage of life where I was regularly taking food to things, whether it was the kids Thanksgiving functions at school or a potluck with our friends. Um, so I'd been looking for these products for 10 years and I, I can't explain, I really in preparation for this podcast, really tried to think like what, what finally prompted this and I can only blame it on a fugue state during quarantine that <laughs> I just for whatever reason I'm like all right I'm, I'm going with this and I kind of came up with what I think is a great name right away and then got a logo right away and it, so it felt like this idea this lingering desire for these products just kind of snowballed and the more I did the more kind of validated I was in it both uh, in terms of my own confidence in it. But then as I shared the idea with more people, right? Like getting that external, not just my mom telling me it's a great idea, but other people, right? Who aren't so vested. Um, mm. But yeah, there, there, was, there was no moment other than it was just finally time and I am rolling with it. So, so now how did you, so you touched on it briefly, but you know, so you are, you have a product you're always looking for, you, you know, you can't find it. You're it's feel like there's, you know, a good idea that they, that's there. Now, how was it to actually take that and, and start to move it towards an idea? In other words, Hey, you know, you've done law practice for a while. You have experience, you have the degree, a startup is quite a bit different in the sense that, you know, there isn't a playbook, there isn't a rote, rote set of rules. There isn't, you know, it's not the attorney and billable hour model. It's really figuring it out as you go along. So as you come up with the idea, how did you, I assume, but correct me if I'm wrong, it started out as a, you know, even a, a side hustle and kind of starting that out. How did that progress for you? Yeah, so, I mean, it, it does get into an interesting, you know, part of startups. I have lived a very, um, you know, kind of task list oriented life, and this has been different, but the, the product concept I have had in its current form really for 10 years. So that piece didn't need to develop. It was just actually implementing the, uh, you know, actually getting it to be in existence and figuring out the marketing piece and getting websites and things like that set up. But the, so I feel like in some ways the, I, I was like, I have one of these, my, one of my little glib takeaways, you know, almost a year into this is the idea is the easy part, right? Like mm -hmm. it's just been everything from the idea that's been harder to put in place. No, and I definitely agree on that. You know, it's always one where people think, oh, the idea is the hard part. The idea is, you know, if I just had that one great idea and a lot of times, even if it's a reasonable or mediocre idea or is it you know good idea it doesn't even have to be a great idea it's oftentimes what separates people is the execution and actually doing it and taking those steps to set it up that makes a successful business or not otherwise you have great ideas that never go anywhere so i i think it's kudos to you for to making that jump so now as you kind of say okay i'd like to put a, the focus on this i think it's a good idea i'd like to get into it how's it gone so far has it just been hey i've i let the law firm do focus on this full time. It's been a rocket ship to the top and it's just been a blast. It's been ups and downs. It's been, you know, difficulties. It's been, how's that all gone or kind of as you've uh, now put the focus on it? So I think um, as any person who's done a startup, it's the, the highs are high and the lows are low. And the, the day that my first products arrived from China, I felt like it was the day, like I had a baby, like opening the box. I couldn't wait to see what this was. And so I'm like, oh, it's a bowl. Um, 
So the, the highs have been high and the lows have been low. It's been a, a steep learning curve, right? I was the, one of my favorite quotes, not even in this context, just generally is, you know, the greater, the larger my island of knowledge, the longer my shore of ignorance. And I feel like that kind of plays out, right? The more I know, the more I realized I don't know. Like I had no idea that UPCs are governed by one entity and you go there and you buy the UPC, you know, I didn't know that, you know, I thought, oh, you just create these. So it's just been the, the, uh, a, a steep learning curve, but a fun one, but it's, you know, unlike billable hours where I, you know, work in six minute increments and have something to show for it. And the brief is due and turned in. This is like every day passes and I maybe didn't check anything off the to-do list, right? And being proactive on things. It's just a different way of living for me. No, and I, I definitely resonate, you know, resonates. And I, I think that's where a lot of entrepreneurs go through and, you know, the things that you didn't know. And I always think that, you know, things always look much easier on the front end and appear much more, much, or much more straightforward. And then you get in, you're like, oh, there's a lot more here to figure out and to get going. So as you've been doing that, you know, kind of give us an idea of where is, where's the business at today? Do you guys have products? Are you getting ready to launch products? Are you still getting manufacturing done? Still getting things set up, you know? already been selling for a while but kind of clue us in us to kind of here to take a bit today and give us a bit an idea because we kind of jumped over what is the product what was the problem you're trying to solve and kind of where you at today sure so i'll start with the why i've been looking for this for 10 years right i always again you get to a stage in life or most people you get to a stage of life where you're regularly taking food to things and every time it just felt like ridiculously difficult to get it there right either i was taking my Tupperware that I got at my bridal shower that's now 20 years old and stained. Now it did seal well, right? But it didn't look nice. Or more often than not, I would take a serving bowl and put saran wrap over it, which never felt very eco-friendly and also wasn't super functional. And so then I would be yelling at a kid not to spill it while we drove. Uh, I've been there and done that multiple times. I'll definitely get it. Go ahead. And then if you're really getting serious, you'll take the crock pot, which is hot to the touch, right? Still yeah. doesn't feel well. So then you're, it's on the balance on the floor and I'm driving super tenuously, hoping it doesn't spill before I get there, right? So it's like, there has to be an easier way to transport food. And so what I have created is, and is a line of serveware, the original insulated transportable serveware that addresses all of those things. It looks great, right? It has a contemporary feel to it. It has a tight fitting lid, which just to me seems like why no one has done it blows my mind. And then it's vacuum insulated. The vessel itself is vacuum insulated, which helps keep the food to the temperature when you put it in there. And also means that when it's sitting on your lap uh, um, in the car on the way to the barbecue, your legs aren't getting scalded right? Because there's nothing worse than like you open it when you get there and that the salad's wilted or the baked beans are like a gelatinous mess, right? So that's what these are designed to address. And so it's been interesting, again, like one of the learning curves, like, okay, here's the bowl I want, just turn it into vacuum insulated stainless steel. Well, of course, that's not the process. You have to, you know, get the design features just right to create the space. So all of that has, has taken longer than I expected, um, but I'm, I have my first production samples and I will really launch at the Atlanta's Mart uh, Home and Gift Trade Show in July. Mm. So shooting for July. And so that means that if you're shooting for July that you have, you're taking pre-orders or you'll have things manufactured or kind of where, or what will you be doing or what will you be showing or having available in July? 
So in July, I'll have uh, samples available to, and then I will be doing a pre-order. And again, it, it's something unique to this moment in time, hopefully it's unique, is, you know, the supply chain is so disrupted because of, you know, COVID and then the increased demand. And so I may or may not have product on hand ready to actually to sell in July, depending on the timing and how backed up the ports are. There's a shortage of plastic of all things. Like all we hear about is how much plastic there is in the oceans. Well, it's only in the oceans, not the factories. So that's, uh, it still remains to be seen, which is again, not how I historically have lived my life, right? It's been a much more controlled environment where we know when things are happening and now I'm a little more at the mercy of, of other, of external forces. Hmm. No, and so, so if I were to summarize that, barring the, potential delays in manufacturing, which are outside of your control. And if there's a shortage of plastic, and I think to that also, you know, I've, we work with on several of my companies, you know, outsourcing and other things that are in other countries and poor countries. And some of what we have, the products are really great with leather working is in India and they've been hit really hard and even just getting things out and even just shipping them, even when they have the product they're ready to ship has been a much more difficult lift than what it otherwise would be. So getting all of that figured out, definitely adds that, that extra layer of complexity, but it, it sounds like things are well on track and that's exciting that uh, pretty soon here, you will have the um, products to sell and be able to actually now bring it out to the marketplace and see how it goes. So, well, the, with that, um, that kind of brings us to a bit to where you're at today and even a bit looking into the future. And so with that, a, a, a great transition to ask the two questions I always ask at the end of each podcast. So the first question I always ask is, Along your journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made and what did you learn from it? So the entire thing may be the worst business decision I've ever made, right? I feel like it's premature for me to, to make that uh, to make that pronouncement. But you know, ask me in a year. Um, I think in part because I still was working uh, and I still had you know, the demands of the family and it's been quarantine. I've moved along pretty methodically and some would say slowly on this. And so the benefit of that is I haven't made any serious missteps that I know of, right? I am not the Google move fast and break things. I am, I've been, you know, kind of plodding along. So I don't have any, I will say like the entire venture, I've just learned so much, right? Every day, learn something new about business and supply chain and shipping and tariffs and, you know, on and on. Hmm. Fair enough. Well, I'm excited to to hear maybe in the future what the mistakes are that you did make and uh, what uh, what you what you learned from. I know I'm making mistakes. I just don't know what they are yet. It's <laughs> adding to the list of you know. I have this running document stuff I wish I knew, except it's not stuff that I wish I knew. And you know, one of this is like, what mistakes am I making? Hmm. All right. Well, we'll have to check in a few months and see which uh, which mistake you figured out you were making that you didn't realize yet. So. Now I'll ask the second question, which is if you're talking to somebody that's just getting into a startup or a small business, what'd be the one piece of advice you'd give them? So again, I almost feel like it's premature. I don't know that I'm in a position to be dispensing advice, but I would say that it's finding a balance between confidence and humility, right? You need supreme confidence in, in your idea and your unique ability to make this idea a reality, whether it's a product, a service, whatever. At the same time, you need humility to know not only what you don't know, right? Like I knew I'm not good at marketing and sales. Mm -hmm. I, I need to also recognize there's other stuff I don't even know I don't know. And having the humility to bring that on, but balancing when I bring in third parties to give advice, balancing 
that with confidence that, but I have this great idea and I'm moving it forward. And so I think there's that inherent tension between confidence and humility, but striking that balance seems really important to being able to move things forward and keeping it in the direction that you envisioned. No, I, I think that is keeping that balance. And, you know, I just kind of add on to that is, you know, I think that when you get into doing your own thing, there's a balance of there's only so much budget, there's only so much time and you have a lot to get done. And yet you also can't be the expert on everything. You can't do it all yourself and you're, or you'll never get it done or it'll be so slow and you'll, it'll never hit the de deadlines you want. So finding that balance of where to offload, where to have help, where to do it yourself, where to cut or cut costs, where to keep or where to spend the money and all that is always that balance and to, to always be looking to readjust and to get that balance is always beneficial to the business. So well, as we wrap up and as a reminder before we wrap up that we also do have the bonus question. We'll talk a little bit about intellectual property here in just a, in, in a little bit. But as we wrap up otherwise, um, if people are wanting to reach out to you, they're wanting to, um, be a customer, they want to be a client, they want to be a, or buy your product, they want to be a vendor, a wholesaler, they want to be an employee, they want to be an investor, they want to be your next best friend, any or all of the above, what's the best way to reach out, contact you, or find out more? Sure. So um, you can email me at Bryn, B-R-Y-N, at shopserved.com, or just check us out at www.shopserved.com. All right. Well, I definitely encourage people to reach out, connect up, find out more and uh, support uh, Served. It's, a, it's a, a pretty cool product. So well, with that, thank you again for coming on the podcast. Now, for all of you that are listeners, if you have your own journey to tell and you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, we'd love to have you. Just go to inventiveguest.com and apply to be on the show. Two more things as a listener. Uh, one, if uh, or make sure to click subscribe on your podcast player so you know when all of our awesome episodes come out. And two, leave us a review so other people can find out about all of our awesome episodes. Last but not least, if you ever need help with uh, patents, trademarks, or anything else with your business, just go to strategymeeting.com, grab some time with us to chat, and we're always here to help. So with that, now we'll transition over to the bonus uh, question portion of the, the podcast and appreciate you and uh, asking a bonus question. It's always kind of fun to be able to switch gears a bit and be the one that gets to answer the questions instead of ask them. And it's always a bit of a different dynamic. So with that, I'll turn it over to you. What's your uh, top intellectual property question? Sure. It's so it's about design patents, which is a category I did not even uh, was not even familiar with a year ago at this time. And the lawyer in me is going to frame it up in subparts. So kind All of right. overarching question is how detailed and specific can or should design patents be? And then kind of the subparts of that are what percentage of patents are design versus utility patents? Are design patents more often used defensively, like to protect your brand or offensively that people come after you? And then how important do you think design patents are for startups, uh, particularly coming into a competitive or existing robust market? So I think there was like five or six questions in there. So I don't know if I'm going to remember all of them. So I'll try my <laughs> best. So remind me, what was the overarching question? Because I've already forgot the first question. So remind <laughs> me what that initial question was. specific kind of can and should hmm. design patents be? So yeah, so I... <laughs> It's it, a little bit of a, and probably a, a, a lawyer answer is it depends. But with, with that, you know, when you're looking, it, you are trying to, so backing up, design patent is one word just for the, the audience is that, is it protects more of the aesthetic look and feel to a, a product. So it's not necessarily utility. It doesn't get into how it functions, 
what it, your functionality and kind of how it works. That's what a utility patent application is. But on the design side, it's okay. We want you to look to protect the unique look and feel to it. In other words, it has this specific shape, this specific curvature, provides this aesthetic nature. And so that's what a design patent is. And so when you're filing a design patent, you're showing what your product is. And so as far as how detailed or not, it should be an accurate and, and, and representation of what your product is because you want the patent to cover that. Now, when it kind of parlay to that, the question is, is well, okay, let's say I show exactly what my product is, how much coverage do I get? Does that mean that if, some, if somebody makes a very small tweak or a very small variation, are they going to then design around my patent or do I have some reasonable kind of scope to that? And, and it's, it's not a definitive answer. I can't just say, well, it's a 10% and then if they change it 10%, I don't even know how you get a percentage in the first place. But, you know, it is not necessarily a percentage, but if they are reasonably, if they are, if their product looks like your product and within a reasonable range, and I don't know, have a hard time ex or giving it an exact definition, but if it's saying, okay, because what you'll basically do and isn't, if you're to go ever to take it into enforcement or to court, or even on Amazon or other things, they're going to put or take your design patent and the in the simplistic way, the judge will look or pull up your design patent. They're going to look at their product and say, do they look the same? Do they not look the same? They look the same or very similar. Then it's, it's likely covered on your design patent and you'd have the protection there. If it's a different look and different design and it doesn't look like yours, then it's not. So how detailed or not is probably more you want to have an accurate representation of what your product is. Um, and then you're going to be able to, is, if somebody else were to come along and make the same or very similar looking product, then it gives you that protection. Um, and I think one of your other questions was a little bit, a little bit more on enforcement. And enforcement, get you know, do you use it offensively? Do you use it defensively? And a little bit that depends on what is the motivation for the enforcement. In other words, you can sometimes you'll get a patent. It's going to be an investment. You're going to get it in, so you can get investor dollars. You can get people that are going to or, or buy into your business. Um, you can, and that one's going to be more of an investment. So you don't really, in that sense, use it offensively or defensively. It's just more of an asset that's investable in your business. You can also use it as a license. In other words, you can license it out to other individuals. And so when somebody else comes on and say, I love your product, I'd like to do something with it. Can I, you know, can I do something or can I make my own version of it or product line? Then you can license it out. Now, if you get people that are going to start to rip it off, that's going to be, we're going to be offensively. And you have to decide, you know, when they start to, if they're to mimic it, rip it off or copy it, is to how much are they intruding in the marketplace and how much are they costing you? In other words, as, as you know, as an attorney, but for all the audience, you know, lawsuits can get expensive, they can be long and they can be drawn out. And so you have to look and say, is there enough of a return on investment for me going to enforce that this is going to make sense? If they're only costing me $500 a year in lost sales, Probably not. If they're causing me $100,000 in lost sales a year or a month or whatever, then it's, makes, or it's worthwhile to go in and enforce it because it's having a, a drastic impact on your business. And so on the offensive side, it's going to do that. On the defensive side, is sometimes it also allows you to, if other people are out in the marketplace and they want to be able to stop you from doing what you or from making your product, or they want to enforce other patents against you, it can act as a defense saying, I'm not going to go after you unless you come after me, but I also do have intellectual property that we have to protect and that we have to, for our product. So I think I answered most of the questions or some of the subparts, but if there's any else, let me know and I can definitely follow up. Well, I think at the very end, so, you know, really as a general rule, how important then are design patents for a startup coming into a, an existing similar market, but that's, that's robust with some big players 
uh, but without identical products. It depends on how good your design is. <laughs> I mean, give you an example. If you'd ask Apple how or how important a design patent is, they had a huge fight with Samsung over the curved right. corners of the iPhone and the circle button in the middle or the bottom of the screen turned out to be a big or big suit. They ended up winning and they were able to stop Samsung from doing. So in that case, the design patent was certainly critical to what they're doing because it gave them a defensible edge over Samsung on a startup or small business. What's that? Or lack of an edge. It was a rounded edge. Well, I said competitive edge, but yes, no, lack of an edge, touche. Um, but with that, you know, if you're a startup or a small business, it's how you, is your design something that's worthwhile to protect? In other words, does it have that unique look and feel? Is it something that customers are going to resonate with that's going to give you that competitive advantage or that competitive edge or lack thereof? Uh, but, you know, is it going to be worthwhile because it's going to do something that is going to set you apart in the marketplace? If the answer is yes, then we're going to be able to be a unique looking product. People are going to associate with it. They're going to want to buy it because it has that cool or cool aesthetic nature to it. Then absolutely it's worthwhile to protect it with your business. On the other hand, if you're saying, yeah, it's a crowded marketplace. We like our look, but there's 20 other looks and customers really aren't going to care between our look or anybody else looks, then it's a lot less now. And that's why I said, and that's also where you kind of get into that balance of do you go for a design patent versus do you go for a utility patent? Sometimes it's the it's absolutely the aesthetic look and feel because that's what sets you apart. You're the iPhone that has the rounded edges and the bottom circular circular button in the bottom or button at the bottom, and that gives you a competitive advantage. And sometimes they're saying it may not be our look and feel, it may be our product and what how it works and what it is and how it's shaped and how it's manufactured and those type of things. So you always kind of got to do that balance of where's our competitive advantage, where's what's proprietary about us, what's unique, and what are people willing to pay for, and then let's make sure to protect that. And with that, we I could talk for intellectual property for a much longer period of time, and I'm sure everybody would start to fall asleep because they're saying we we've heard enough of the legal stuff. We listened in for the or for the startup part portion of the podcast, but definitely fun questions. Definitely love to ask. And if you or any of the audience has any other questions, follow up or any other or any other questions to come or come along as you guys pursue your business, feel free to go to strategymeeting.com, grab some time with us to chat. We're always happy to help and make sure to answer your questions. With that, thank you again, Bryn, for coming on. It's been a fun, it's been a pleasure and wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last. Thanks so much, Devin, appreciate it. Have a good one.